From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Soon, COVID-19 won't be the only viral star on stage. The flu's about to share the spotlight, so how will they interact? Then, two Colorado lawmakers who left their parties reflect on this moment of vitriol and gridlock. And in her own words, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on her confirmation. My biggest supporter was not Joe Biden, who was chair of the Judiciary Committee then, although he was certainly good to me. It was Orrin Hatch. A Republican. We'll listen back to Ginsburg's conversation with the Aspen Institute. Also, Boulder asks RTD, where is our dang train? The prospects are bleak. Pandemic hit. And the thought of spending money on a giant capital project right now does not make a lot of sense. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One way to tell fall is just around the corner, all the pharmacy signs for flu shots. This year, because of the pandemic, public health experts are pushing the flu shot more than ever. Manufacturers will produce a record-breaking 190 million vaccines at least. CPR's Claire Cleveland is here with some insight. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. I'll just say that in anticipation of your being on the show, I got my flu shot. So I have a sore left arm. Well done. Uh, Why is it so important to get a flu shot this year? Well, in a non-pandemic year, the flu kills tens of thousands of Americans. And in general, we have very low vaccination rates. In the 2017 to 18 flu season, which was the worst in years, Mm. The flu killed 61,000 people in this country, and only about 37% of the population was vaccinated. So this year, as cold weather and schooling put folks in close quarters, we could see COVID-19 and flu cases rise. That worries public health officials who want to be sure that they can treat everyone who needs to be treated. But there are enough beds, in a way, in mm-hmm. hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Haygood of Parachute Colorado asks about timing. Uh, Jay emailed, I will receive a flu shot this year, but I don't want to lose protection too early next spring. What mm-hmm. perspective can you provide? Yeah. um, Now is a good time to get your flu shot. Flu season in the U.S. typically starts in October, peaks December through February, but it can last all the way into May. Uh, The shot offers protection for about six months, and it takes your body two weeks from the time you get the shot until you have antibodies that shield you. Um, And it's important to note that people who are over 65 should get a high-dose vaccine. It elicits a stronger immune response. Um, But, of course, talk to your doctor or pharmacist about what's best for you. So getting it now shields you for that peak, especially, which Mm -hmm. feels important. Mm -hmm. Could someone get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, Claire? Yes, but we don't know how common that is yet, Mm -hmm. Um, which is all the more reason to just get a flu shot. And keep wearing your mask, social distancing, washing your hands to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Marty, who reads CPR's newsletter, The Lookout, wrote in, I'm wondering why the flu is expected to be bad this year if so many people are wearing masks for COVID-19. Seems like we will be spreading fewer of any kinds of germs, not more. Reflect on that for us. Yeah. So Marty's right. If people continue to distance, wear masks, and practice good hand hygiene, then we may have a less severe flu season. But those things should be done in conjunction with the flu vaccine. It's a safe and effective way to prevent the spread of flu and prevent flu hospitalizations and deaths. 
okay, if I get the flu or the common cold, how do I know I don't have COVID-19? You don't. You won't know based on your symptoms. Yeah. All of these viral infections are going to look and feel similar. Not to mention, we're all on high alert for COVID-19. The only way you'll know is by getting a test. I spoke with Emily Cheshire, a nurse practitioner who has a doctorate in infectious disease. She told me the first thing a doctor will ask symptomatic patients this fall is whether they've had a flu shot. It'll help healthcare professionals determine the best course of action for patients. Uh, while we don't have a COVID-19 vaccine yet, the National Institutes of Health predicts it might be only 50 to 60 percent effective when it arrives. How does that compare to the effectiveness of this year's flu vaccine? I know that's all dependent on doctors picking the right kind of flu strain, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it certainly depends on whether the researchers have chosen the right strains of flu to vaccinate against. Um, but you can't predict in advance how effective the flu vaccine is going to be in any given year. So, uh, for example, in February of 2019, the flu vaccine was at about 47 percent effective. And then a new strain popped up and dragged the overall effectiveness down to 29 percent oh, wow. late in the season. Uh, we won't know how well this year's vaccine works until there's enough data from patients to calculate that effective rate. To the idea of what a flu vaccine actually does, bottom line this for us, does it keep someone from getting sick or does it just lessen the symptoms if, you know, I do get sick or both? Yeah, the flu uh, vaccine or the influenza vaccine does both. On average, it keeps about 40 percent of people who get it from getting sick. In others, it's been shown to lessen the severity of the flu and keep people out of hospitals. Emily Cheshire, that nurse practitioner I was talking about, she said this. So not only when you get the flu vaccine, do you produce antibodies to the strains of flu that were delivered in that flu vaccine, your immune response ramps up and is able to protect against other respiratory viruses. Influenza is really tricky to vaccinate against. Not only are there dozens of strains, those strains mutate quickly. From the time the strains are selected for the vaccine in February or March to when the vaccine is given to people in the fall, the viruses have most likely mutated or changed. Some more than others, which makes your immunity less effective. But the idea that the flu vaccine uh, bumps up my immune response in general, that, that's promising. Mm -hmm. Another lookout reader, Cheryl, asked, will any flu vaccination this fall interact negatively with any potential COVID-19 vaccine coming maybe this winter or spring, if we're lucky? For that answer, here's Emily Cheshire. We can't answer that question 100 percent from a scientific standpoint right now. And that's because there's no COVID vaccine. Flu vaccines can be given safely and effectively and are recommended by the CDC to be given simultaneously with the long list of other vaccines. That is to say, it doesn't negatively interact with other vaccines right now. So maybe that's a good sign for the COVID-19 vaccine if and when it comes. Correct. Thanks so much for this context, Claire. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Ryan. Claire Cleveland is covering the pandemic for CPR News. She also writes our weekly COVID-19 newsletter, which you can subscribe to at CPR.org. We're having conversations about this political moment in America, how divisive it can be. The other day, we talked about how during the pandemic, people went from howling nightly for healthcare workers 
to toppling store displays over a mask mandate. Well, the two major political parties are now at war over the U.S. Supreme Court. It's just the latest example of intensifying rhetoric, and at the national level, what can often be gridlock. Today, an unusual perspective, two former lawmakers who left their parties and became unaffiliated. Sherry John is a former Democrat who represented Wheat Ridge in the state House and Senate for 18 years. And Sherry, welcome back to the program. Thank you. And Rob Whitwer is a former Republican who represented Western Jefferson County from 05 to 08. Rob, nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. I want to start at the national level in this fight over the Supreme Court. Rob, what's your take on the level of vitriol? Well, I think we all, when we saw the news, the uh, the sad news of the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, I think we all braced ourselves for what is inevitably going to be an incredibly vitriolic uh, several weeks. And I don't think anybody in the country looks forward to the, the level of intensity and the toxicity of the debate that's about to come. And it's just emblematic of this whole problem. I mean, it's fascinating. We're actually going to hear an archive interview with Justice Ginsburg a little later in this program. And she was confirmed by an overwhelming majority. This was not always true of Supreme Court confirmations. What's your sense of why this is happening? Yeah, there's been a trend. Uh, It's true. Historically, uh, justices were very often uh, uh, put onto the court by acclamation in the Senate. It was really an automatic process. And that was a reflection of the understanding that our founders gave us a system of government where neither side gets a decisive win. Everything is a process of compromise, and that's necessary in a, in a, a self-governed country. What's happened in the last 20, 30 years, but it's really accelerated in the last five, is that both parties are looking for the decisive win, and it's a zero-sum game. It's not enough just to win. The other side has to lose. And in our system of government, uh, that that creates this perpetual conflict. Neither side will ever get fully satisfied that it's gotten what it wanted, but there's the but the level of animosity continues to accelerate. Well, Sherry, what's your take on this moment? Uh, what what do you think in the process makes the parties so split? Well, I first of all want to say that I uh, agree with my former colleague who we worked very, very well together downtown. And I have to say, you know, his words cannot be more than true, that right now it is about win at all costs, regardless of party affiliation. And it's win. And I see it as, you know, today it's which party can just absolutely control. It's not about the issues that are going on. It's not about the the, the people. It's about which party can control. And I think it's just become more and more divisive um, over the years. So um, I wish I had a good answer as to how to bring people back to where we were. But um, there's a, a lot of animosity well, um, let, me, let me push back a little bit on this, Sherry John. You, you, know, you say it's not about the issues, and yet for some it, it absolutely is. And they see issues as being fairly uh, cut and dried, black or white. Either I have rights or I don't. Uh, so that, that it's a zero-sum game in a way because people feel that what's at stake is zero-sum. What, what do you make of that? Well, no, now I'm going to agree with you there. And when I said that it's not about the issues, I didn't mean, for instance, this is a big issue and you have to vote based upon the issue. I get that. But at the same time, you know, one of the greatest remarks that 
that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg ever said was fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you, not to be divisive and not to further cause separation, but to try to bring people together. I'm not sure there's a way to do that on this particular issue that you're talking about right now, but there are certainly ways to do that on 98% of them. I guess I didn't name a specific one, but there's no doubt that health care, that reproductive rights are at the center of this. Uh, Rob Whitworth, do you want to reflect a bit on what you heard from Sherry John there? Yeah, you know, I agree with that. And, and Second Amendment's another one of those issues that people feel very strongly about, mm. and they feel that there's a zero sum. I, You know, the, I think it's possible for people to disagree uh, without being disagreeable. It's really important, and, and Sherry and I worked together in the State House to, on a lot of issues, many of which we disagreed on, uh, more of which we agreed on. The key is, though, you cannot allow a disagreement on today's issue to prevent you from working t- together on tomorrow's issue, which might be a very critical issue that needs to be addressed for the good of the people of the state. But what's happening right now is that level of toxicity, uh, it's becoming personal. It's becoming, um, uh, it, the, the idea is basically, if you disagree with me, you're evil. And so I can't work with you on anything. And it's foreclosing the possibility that we can achieve consensus on some of these other issues that it should be absolutely possible for us to work together on. For example, there's no reason we can't have an immigration policy that uh, would appeal to a majority of the people of the country and take tens of millions of people out of a uh, of kind of a limbo that they're in right now. That should be addressed, but we can't because everybody's fighting all the time. So whose rhetoric has to change? You know, I I guess I would say that um, if I had one piece of advice about what, how could we do better, I would say that we need to start um, putting social media in its place in terms of the contribution that it has to the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about the nature of anonymous accounts uh, that allows people to be uh, as nasty as they want to be uh, without any kind of uh, consequences or repercussion. And that is not the way a government like ours works. People need to to uh, engage. They need to, to uh, put ideas out there, have a good faith conversation. And I would also point out, I think it would be negligent not to point out, that a lot of the anonymous uh, 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 trolls online that are stoking this divisiveness are actually state sponsored by governments that do not wish us well. And we're playing right into their hands uh, by continuing and picking up the, um, the nastiness and then directing it against our fellow Americans. Yeah, it's so fascinating. We had two researchers on the program recently who have studied trolls and bots. And, you know, one of the takeaways from that conversation was when you see something online that boils your blood, stop and think for a moment. Who wants my blood to boil? What are the motivations of these folks? I would like to explore uh, with each of you why you were a member of the party you were and why you left it. And I'll just want to point out that by becoming unaffiliated, uh, you represent a growing trend in Colorado where unaffiliateds now represent a higher percentage of voters than either Democrats or Republicans. Sherry John, why were you a Democrat? Why did you leave the party? Well, I was a Democrat for many, many, many years. Um, I left because of some of the things, you know, that, that we're talking about. First of all, I felt that they were going much further, further, further to the left on some of the issues that I couldn't support. I'm a small business owner. Um, and so I just had some different different opinions on things. But it became more and more that you were the outcast. And as Rob said, 
you know, when we first started down there, there was collegiality, there was respect, there was respect for the decorum, uh, there was collaboration, honest negotiations, and those were all very positive things. And by the time I, you know, went into my my going into my final term, some of those things were looked down on. Like how how could you possibly work with those people? Well, I think we need more bridge builders, and that's what I was known for, uh, and very very proud of that. And so. Um, I just felt that the unaffiliated voice did not have a big enough voice. And, um, you know, just due to not always having my opinions welcomed and being an outsider, that I needed to be true to myself. And that was just changing my affiliation to an unaffiliated so I could be independent thinking. I'd love an example of where, when you felt like an outcast as a moderate Democratic state lawmaker? Well, there's many times that legislation will be going through that affect business owners, and that certainly includes small business owners. And looking into the legislation and reading the details, because the devil is always in the details, you know, I could, you know, see consequences down the road that were going to actually end up hurting small businesses and businesses, making it much more, much more costly to do business. And um, I would not be able to support that. So um, off the top of my head, I can't just, you know. Yeah, but, but expressing those reservations, in other words, uh, got you eye rolls or, 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 or what? Well, yes. And, you know, there were times when I would be chastised in, um, you know, the caucus. We, we always have caucus um, meetings where we can discuss different issues that are coming up. And um, But I have to tell you that afterwards, I would have many colleagues come to me and say, um, you are so right. You are so right on this. I wish that I could um, vote the way that you're voting, but mm. I just can't. And I believe that the, the outside interest and the, the money coming in from the outside interest plays a really big part in all of this as well. Um, these are people that have supported our campaigns and we need to support them. I believe that we need to look at the issues and support it based on that. We promise that Sherry John is not joining us from the bottom of a swimming pool, but by video chat. Welcome to the pandemic reality of, of radio. Uh, Rob Whitwer, why were you a Republican? Why'd you leave? I became a Republican uh, when I was young, uh, probably about 14, 15 years old. I read a, um, a couple of books uh, by a Soviet dissident named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he chronicled the uh, oppression of intellectuals and religious people and people who thought freely in the former Soviet Union. And at the very time I was reading that book, Ronald Reagan was on television saying the Soviet Union's an evil empire. And I thought I appreciated Ronald Reagan's moral clarity on uh, on that particular issue, which I thought was the greatest issue in the world at the time. Uh, and he locked me in when he said, tear down this wall. I also have limited government inclinations, and that was why I became a Republican. But, you know, Ronald Reagan also said that politics is a game of addition and not subtraction. And so when I became a legislator, I believe my job was to persuade people um, towards the ideas that I thought were good for governing. So I would go to a Sherry John, somebody on the other side of the aisle, because yeah. I was in the minority. And I would say, Sherry, I, I'd love to have your support on this bill so I can get it passed. Uh, and I was able to find that. And I think that did exist 15 years ago here in Colorado. Um, what made me leave the party and it was a lot of things. Uh, Could, but, let me let me read your quote from when ahead. you did. Our pathological inability to get along is a national suicide pact. 
Those are just some of the words you wrote when you left the GOP. Yeah. Um, you know, that's those words were first used in 1848 by Abraham Lincoln in the um, light. Not exactly those words, but I'm paraphrasing it. But in the, the Lyceum speech, he said that there's no Napoleon is ever going to drink from the the shores of the Ohio River. In other words, we're not going to die because somebody invades us and takes us over. He said, if America is going to die, it's going to die by its own hand. Mm. And, you know, I see that happening. I see those 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 uh, bonds of affection being strained to the point uh, of, of us viewing each other as Americans, as part of the problem, as evil. And if you play this, this out, this dynamic out, five years, 10 years, it can only lead to the destruction of the republic. We need to recognize that this, that this divisiveness and this toxicity is an existential threat to America and to us personally, each and every one of us. And we are all in this together, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, and we need to figure out a way to work together. In the presidential race, is there one party that's more guilty of this than another? I don't mean to imply the answer, but I, I would like your assessment of the current players in the current field. I think we could get really intelligent people on both sides of the aisle and they could go back and forth for hours playing, uh, yeah, but what about? Uh -huh. And so, you know, I think that's part of the problem. I think we, we're constantly looking for the, um, for the gotcha. And, you know, I think that... Uh, to get to the point of why I left, I, I don't want to be a part of the problem anymore. I think that something needs to come from the outside and challenge the duopoly. And Is that uh, a third party I hear you talking about then? It, it could be a third party. I, I recognize there are huge structural issues mm -hmm. in getting a third party mm -hmm. up and running. I'm not, not naive. But uh, I think that the parties need to understand that, that this um, win-at-all-costs mentality and this zero-sum game mentality is uh, not acceptable. And that there will be, there should be political consequences if they continue. I would love to see right now, for example, and would be, uh, I think a lot of Americans would love to see a handful of senators on both sides of the aisle or the president come together and say, you know what, we're going to break this cycle and we are going to come up with a consensus nominee. We're going to go for 100 votes on this person. Of course, that's not going to happen, but that would be real leadership. In just about the last minute, Sherry, John, would you like to see a third party? Do you know, I agree with Rob. I would absolutely love it. I have to say that the structural part um, would be very, very difficult. But, you know, there is another way for people to get their voices heard. The unaffiliated, you know, for example, that, you know, just feel disenfranchised by both parties for various reasons. And um, you know what? If you really pay attention as a voter, when you have candidates coming up and you're asking the right questions, and you're finding out, is there loyalty to the to the issues that you care so much about? Or is there loyalty to the party? You know, you can make a pretty darn good decision that way. And I think the voters, you know, have started, certainly have started um, doing more vetting and finding out. So are you loyal to just the party or are you really going to work for me and help me and my family um, have a better life? Sherry John of Wheat Ridge switched from Democrat to unaffiliated in 2017. That was the year before she left the legislature. She's a small business owner. Rob Whitware is a former Republican who changed to unaffiliated last year. He served in the legislature from 05 to the end of 08, lives in Genesee, west of Denver, practices law. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. 
Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. Another passenger rail line just opened, RTD's N-Line, to the northern suburbs of Metro Denver. Across the region, six routes have opened since 2013, but there's one area still waiting for their promised train. And Nathaniel Miner, CPR's transportation reporter, what area are we talking about? We're talking northwest, so Boulder, Longmont, up the 36 corridor. And they have been waiting for their train. You recently dug into the history of this proposed line. Where did the idea of it come from? So you really have to go back to 1990s or so. RTD is, they've just completed their first rail line from, it goes through downtown Denver, down south to I-25 and Broadway. And their new general manager at the time says, you know what? Let's go for it. Let's build something big. We're gonna, he he uh, starts, you know, drawing trains on a map, going out to all corners of the district, uh, goes to a vote in 1997. This is Fast Tracks. This is not Fast Tracks. Oh. This is the predecessor. It's called Guide the Ride. Okay. Um, and it fails. Uh, the board wasn't on, you know, they were sort of fighting over it. Half thought it was a good idea, half didn't. Huh. And it wasn't exactly clear what everyone was going to get. So Boulder was going to get something. They weren't really sure what. So after this fails... Uh, by you know, popular vote. By popular vote. Okay. They go back to the drawing board and come up with fast tracks a couple of years later. So that goes to the vote in 2004, and it's much more specific. So Boulder's going to get both a BRT bus line up there and... BRT bu- bus rapid transit. That's right. And also a commuter train. It'll parallel 36, hit Boulder um, on the eastern side, and then go up the diagonal to Longmont and passes with flying colors... And, you know, then RTD starts actually digging in and trying to get this done. Yeah. So for many, many years, folks in and around Boulder have had a rather specific picture in front of them of what they were promised, what they signed up to pay taxes to build. Then what? So a few things happen. Uh, One is RTD did not actually get the necessary land, the right of way uh, between Denver and Boulder before the vote. So... Vote happens. They then go to the railroads and say, hey, BNSF, we sort of need some of this land. Is there any way we can lease it from you? And they go back and forth for a while. Then BNSF comes up with a number that is not the $66 million RTD thought it would be. It's more like half a billion. Wow. So for the, Just for the corridors, just, not even for the building. That's it. right. This is just to lease the corridor. So they'd still have to share it. So that, the Great Recession happens, you know, all these sort of things come together and the Boulder train just sort of gets pushed back to the back of the line. I mean, I hear this and I think, shouldn't RTD have done its due diligence before it promised the moon to Boulder through fast tracks? So what they did at the time was just look at similar land deals from across the country okay, and sort of guesstimated like, okay, well, you know, we'll probably have to spend about this much for that piece of land. At the time, uh, the railway, BNSF, wasn't really using it. And from what I've heard, the oil boom in North Dakota had a big impact on this because all of a sudden BNSF uh, started moving cars full of 
oil through that corridor. And suddenly it was a lot more valuable because mm. they needed it. So, you know, there's no way RTD can foresee that in 2004, but these things all sort of come together. Right. And you mentioned the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Of course, now we see, you know, very popular lines like the A-Line to Denver International Airport. And one wonders why they were built before Boulder, you know? Well, the A-Line is somewhat unique in the entire Fast Tracks program because it's connecting DIA, which is a giant employment center, there's people coming in, to downtown. So there's a big destinations on both sides. That means the ridership numbers for that, even when they were projecting this, the ridership was extremely high. So even when the Great Recession hit, they were able to get two things that they needed to get it done. One was private investment. They got a private company to build it and operate it. And they got federal money. They got a billion dollars in federal money because they were able to prove that there was a need here and that this project would help solve the need. That is not the case on the B line. The the ridership projections there are pretty low. 5,000 people a day for a billion and a half dollar project. That's a tough sell. You know, there's not a lot of tall buildings up there. And also there's good bus service. And so if you're going to spend a billion and a half dollars, you will be cannibalizing some of that ridership from bus and the feds look at that and say, why would we give you this money when you already have transit service there? So that goes back to the promise RTD made of both. And I need to know more about this myself, but I'm curious why Boulder was promised two different types. Yeah. Bus and train. Yeah. Yeah. From the beginning. From the beginning. fast tracks. Yes. But of course, there are some people who just feel strongly about a train and the identity of all that. I sure. Guess. They say, look, trains are nice. They can cut right through the bad weather. Um, they're better for economic development. Boulder actually built a whole new station on the east side of town. That's great. And there's no train there. And they've also paid almost a quarter billion dollars in taxes in 2004. So, you know, you can understand when, when someone from Boulder says, where's my, where's my dang train? We also have to think of the finances right now of RTD in, in general and how those match up against expectations, you know, for this Boulder service. Absolutely. So RTD is in pretty tough shape right now. Um, you know, a lot of things are converging at once. First is for the lines that have opened over the last eight years or so. You know, they took out a lot of debt for that, you know, half a billion dollars almost uh, for the N line, which opened yesterday. That's a lot of money and they need to pay for that every year. And so that's putting a lot of pressure on their budget right now. At the same time, pandemic hit and their ridership and sales tax revenue uh, is just in the toilet. And, you know, the thought of spending money on a giant capital project right now does not make a lot of sense. Just, you know, looking at the numbers alone. So, I mean, this is playing out at the board level right now. They have some money saved up toward this Boulder train. Um, there was a discussion. A towards of, the train? Uh, yes. They do have money saved up. They've got okay. about $120 million or something saved up for it. They need a billion and a half. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's barely a down payment. It took them a decade to even get that. So when the board said, hey, we have this money here, maybe we should pull it out and use it for stuff we need right now, like bus service. Folks in Boulder and Longmont freaked out and said, no, 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 no. That's for us. So this is all sort of playing out right now. Letters going back and forth, that sort of thing. And guiding this is a new CEO at RTD. Yes, uh, Deborah Johnson. She is taking over in a couple months. She's coming from Southern California. Maybe she'll have some great ideas. I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to have her on your show and you can ask oh, her about okay, it. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> Nathaniel, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner on RTD's long-delayed train between Denver and Boulder. 
Still to come, a 2017 interview with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the Aspen Institute. She talks about being one of the few women in her law school class and what she admires about constitutions from some other countries. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Back in 2015, Colorado made national headlines with the bust of a huge pot smuggling ring. They were producing thousands of pounds of pot and shipping it out of state, in some cases using skydiving planes for sale in the black market. What happens when legalizing weed actually enables illegal activity? On the latest episode of On Something, find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked a lot about her experiences as a female attorney and jurist in a 2017 interview at the Aspen Institute. The interviewer is the Institute's Elliot Gerson, an attorney who himself clerked at the Supreme Court. They also discussed her friendship with the late Justice Antonin Scalia, which became the subject of a comic opera. And opera is where Gerson started the conversation, noting that Justice Ginsburg loved the arts. So would you have preferred to be an opera star? If I had any talent God could give me, I would be a great diva. But as sad for me, I am a monotone. So I sing in only two places. One is the shower, (laughs) and the other is my dreams. (laughs) One could seriously have asked you as a young woman if you aspired to be an opera singer. But no sensible person, when you were a young woman, would have probably asked you if you could aspire to be a judge, to say nothing of a justice of the Supreme Court. And when you just think of in your lifetime, how women and the law, uh, just uh, how radically different circumstances are. It's now possible to ask, like the young woman in the front row, would you like to be a justice of the Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. Just tell us a little bit about that and, and how much things have changed. We could start with my entering class at Harvard Law School. I attended from 56 to 58 and then transferred to Columbia for my last year. There were nine women in a class of over 500. And they divided us into four sections, so there were two women in my, in my section. There were some inconveniences at the time. The law school in those days had two teaching buildings and only one of them had a women's bathroom. <laughs> These were pre-Title Seven days, so employers were upfront about not wanting to hire women. When I transferred to Columbia, a very outstanding law professor, Jerry Gunther, was in charge of clerkships. And although my grades were very good, he didn't get a positive re- response from any of the judges in the Eastern District, which is Brooklyn, or the Southern District, New York. So he approached one judge, Judge Palmieri, and said, I'd like you to take a chance on Ruth Ginsburg. Judge Palmieri's answer was, well, I've had a woman clerk, but 
Ruth Ginsburg has a four-year-old daughter, and I can't take a risk on having a mother as a law clerk. So then there was a carrot, and Professor Gunther said, give her a chance, and if she doesn't work out, there's a young man in her class who's at a downtown firm, and he will come in and take over. That was the carrot. And there was a stick. The stick was, (laughs) if you don't give her a chance, I will never recommend another Columbia student to you. Whoa. (laughs) And so that's... Getting the first job was hard for women of of my vintage. But once you got the first job, you did it at least as well as the men, and so the next step was not as hard. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, a graduate from law school a few years before I did, with very good grades, and no one wanted to hire her as a lawyer. So she volunteered to work free for a county attorney and said, I'll work free for four months, and after that, you decide if I'm worth putting on the payroll, which, of course, she, she was. But life is strange. You may think that something not good has happened, like not being able to get a job. And it turns out to be remarkably lucky. So Sandra said, where would the two of us be if there had been no discrimination? Well, today we'd be retired partners from a large law firm. (laughs) In this book, you favorably quote Judge Rubin, I think it was, for saying why it is important for women to be judges, that they bring differences in biology, cultural impact, and experience. Do you believe that women judge differently from men? The answer that... Justice O'Connor gave, and that I've given many times, comes from a judge on the Minnesota Supreme Court, Jean Coyne. She said, at the end of the day, a wise old man and a wise old woman will reach the same judgment. And that is so. But we also bring to the table experience that the men don't have, because we've grown up female. So it doesn't make, I can't point to any case where I can say that I voted some way and a man wouldn't vote the same way. But we do have something to contribute. I'll give you one example. Some years ago, the court had a case of a 13-year-old girl in the eighth grade who was said to suspected of having contraband. Well, it turned out that what she had was two Advil pills, but she was hauled off to the restroom and strip-searched. Her mother was outraged and began a suit against the school district for humiliating her child in that way. When the argument was made at the court, some of my colleagues made light of it talked about the boys in the gym, the eighth-grade boys who were not at all embarrassed by undressing in front of each other. And I said, 
a 13-year-old girl is not like a 13-year-old boy. And they began to think, think about their own daughters. And suddenly there were no more fun and games. You've said many times, I think, that the ideal number of women to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court is nine. <laughs> no, the, the, que uh, the question was... Is, is, is that, still, is that the, still your view? The question was, when will there be enough? Well, there'll be enough when there are no more seats. <laughs> Uh, let, let, no, the, it, we're doing pretty well now with one-third of the court. Not as well as Canada. They have uh, four members are women, including their chief justice. But certainly the change has been enormous. When I went to law school, there was only one woman who had ever been on a federal court of appeals, and that was Florence Allen from Ohio. She retired before I graduated from law school, and then there were none again, until President Johnson appointed Shirley Hufstetler to the Ninth Circuit, and then President Carter made her the first ever Secretary of Education. There were none again. The person who deserves tremendous credit for changing that situation is Jimmy Carter. He had only four years in office, no vacancy on the Supreme Court, but he literally changed the complexion of the U.S. judiciary. He looked around, he said, they all look like me, but that's not how the people of the great United States look. So he was determined to appoint women in numbers, members of minority groups, in numbers, not just as one at a time curiosity. He appointed over 25 women to the trial bench, to federal district courts, and 11 to courts of appeals. And I was one of the lucky 11, but I never thought about the possibility of a judicial career until Carter yeah. came present. Much has been written, including an opera, about your relationship with Justice Scalia. And I think it's just remarkable to many people how you could have such a close relationship with a man whose views on so many things that you both were so passionate about were so divergent. You know, whether it's campaign finance, employment discrimination, affirmative action, access to abortions and contraception, Second Amendment, death penalty, yet you were very close to him. Can you help us understand how that happened? And maybe even more importantly, is there a lesson there from the collegiality you had with him that could perhaps be applied to our awful state of politics today <laughs> where people who have those divergent views seem to live on different planets. So first, the question, how is it that you and Justice Scalia were so close? And then secondly, is there a broader lesson for that? We were close on the DC circuit. We used to spend New Year's together. I said, number one reason why I loved Justice Scalia so is he made me laugh. He's a very funny fellow. 
Um, beyond that, we share a love of opera. We were supers together at the Washington National Opera twice, and we both care about family. Although Scalia and I disagreed on some very important issues, he would sometimes call me. He didn't send a memo to the rest of the court, but he said, Ruth, you made a grammatical error. (laughs) 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 Or I would tell him, this opinion is so overheated. You'd be more persuasive if you toned it down. He he never listened to that. (laughs) (laughs) Or another one, one case where we strongly disagreed was the Virginia Military Institute case. A sexual discrimination case. Yeah. But it's interesting, the the change in the times. The title of that case is United States against Virginia. So it was the United States telling the state of Virginia, you cannot give an opportunity to one gender and not to the other. Well, it was coming about this time of year. I had circulated my opinion for the court. And Justice Scalia came to my chambers and threw down a sheaf of paper and said, Ruth, this is my penultimate draft of the dissent in the VMI case. It's not quite ready to be circulated to the court, but I want to give you as much time as I can to answer it. So I started to read this on the plane to Albany. I was going to the Second Circuit Judicial Conference. It absolutely ruined my weekend. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was glad to have the extra days to answer him. So are there lessons? I mean, just the fact that you could be so collegial that, you know, could be applied to, say, Congress, where... (laughs) Well, where, where, the, where the very idea of being that close to someone on the other side is seemingly now so alien. That's now. It hasn't always been that way. I was tremendously lucky to be nominated for my good job in 1993. The vote was 96 to 3. And it was unanimous in the committee. It was, if it, Yes, and, and, and for Scalia, who was certainly a known quantity when he was nominated for the Supreme Court, he'd written a lot. He had been a judge for some years on the D.C. Circuit. There were no negative votes. At the hearing, my biggest supporter was not Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee then, although he was certainly uh, good to me, it was Orrin Hatch. So what, what has happened? I mean, you just look at the experience with Merrick Garland, and then you look at the vote for Neil Gorsuch, and, uh, you know, as you said, it was 96 to 3 for you. I mean, for, for Justice Gorsuch, they had to execute the nuclear option. Judge Garland never even got a hearing on purely partisan grounds. So what has happened? How bad is that in terms of suggesting that the Supreme Court is just another political branch? And what, if anything, can we do about it? There will be someday people from both sides, Republicans and Democrats, who really care about our nation, 
you know, there was a group that got together on the nomination of judges uh, for a while. I mean, the Senate used to be known as a gentleman's club. <laughs> we don't set a good model for the world. No, cer certainly not. But um, let me give you a, the, this Scalia Ginsburg comic opera is very much about collegiality. So Scalia is locked in a dark room being punished for excessive dissenting. <laughs> and I enter the scene through a glass ceiling <laughs> to help him go through the trials that he needs to go through to get out of the dark room. <laughs> and then a character left over from Don Giovanni, the commentatore, said, why do you want to help him? He's your enemy. And I said, I sing, he's not my enemy, he's my friend. And then we have a wonderful duet that is titled, We Are Different, We Are One. A few years ago, Justice Ginsburg, you caused a bit of controversy when you suggested that the US Constitution might not be the ideal model for newly emerging democracies, and you pointed to South Africa's constitution and some others, I think. Could you tell us a little bit about what you meant? Our constitution was written in 1787. It's a remarkable document, but it was skimpy about rights. And the reason was that many of the framers of the constitution thought in the natural rights mode. There was resistance to having a Bill of Rights because the fear was if we write down the rights, then we'll be limiting them. People have rights by virtue of being human, and it doesn't have to be written down in the Constitution. That was the thinking then. And that's why the original Constitution doesn't have a free speech protection, a freedom of religion protection, but for today's world, the reason I, I cited the uh, South Africa Constitution is they put all the basic human rights up front. That's Article 1. Well, I, I, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you all for being here, and most of all, to thank Justice Ginsburg for giving us so much time. On the An excerpt of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 2017 conversation at the Aspen Institute. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.